Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. This episode is a 10-page podcast all about one of his short stories. Get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Barks Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, and my guest Sarah Santiago and I are going to resume part two of our episode on Scroogeonomics, and we're going to be talking about spending money. All right. So, um, Sarah, for this second part of our Scroogeonomics episode, I want to read a quote that I found of Barks from way back when, um, when I was looking up the story Statuesque Spendthrifts. He's talking about this other famous 10-pager where he's in this like ridiculously expensive statue building contest with the Maharaja of How Do You Stand? And he said that the statue building contest between Uncle Scrooge and the Maharaja became ridiculous as time went on. I don't blame one woman for writing a letter saying that she thought it was a gross misuse of money. I wrote back to the office telling them that the woman had missed the point entirely. All the money that had been spent on those statues had gone into circulation, much better than if it had continued lying in the Maharaja's money bin, or Scrooge's money bin. That money had created a tremendous amount of work for jewelers and goldsmiths and concrete men and hydraulics experts. Everybody had a job out of that, so the money hadn't been wasted. And so that that right there is a big, like, philosophical idea, right? We, we talked about kind of the inherent um, propaganda or editorializing that lay at the heart of a financial fable. And the next story that we're going to be talking about, spending money, is really like that quote writ large, that quote turned into a story. And again, just like financial fable, he's got these like big ideas that are being um, expounded upon in this funny animal comic book. And, and they're, he's writing them as though they're an ironclad law of the universe when there, there's a lot up for debate there. So Sarah, that quote to me, like, really sums up how Barks feels about, you know, kind of the like stimulus power of money, um, some of the good aspects of essentially concentrating wealth. And it it really strikes me as like a, a, a very ahead of the time advocating for the policy of supply side economics, um, which I would argue is is a big part of uh, how the Reagan administration ruined America. Not not, <laughs> to, not to get too political for this episode, but um, but I think these are very political stories. So do you do you know about the Laffer curve, Sarah? Um, I don't. What is that? So just in brief, the Laffer curve is this like idea sketched up by an economist named Arthur Laffer literally on a cocktail napkin. Um, and, and he became very influential in the Reagan administration. And it's basically what gave the American right the idea that what justified the idea of supply side economics, right? It was impossible to cut taxes too much because money that stayed in the hands of the rich 
was extremely productive money and it would stimulate the economy and you would actually get more revenue um, because money in the hands of rich people is so incredibly productive. Like a financial fable, this is a story that to me is like incredibly tightly plotted, very, very funny, and and works in and of itself with the rules that Barks has given it that really falls apart when you try to like <laughs> um, examine it as an economics experiment. Very much like supply-side economics. Yes. So... <laughs> This one is is also very highly rated. It was originally published in Walt Disney's Comics and Stories number 144 in September of 1952. So just a few months after a financial fable. Um, And a a reminder that that one was rated 7.7, good for 129 on index. This one is also a 7.7 just a little bit below uh, 159. And um, like a financial fable, it generally hangs out in the top 10 rankings of all of his 10 pagers, if you just break them apart. So this is a very well-remembered, very well-regarded 10-page story by Barks among fans. So what do you say? You ready to talk about this one? Ready. All right. So spending money is one of those stories that opens on Scrooge's money bin. Um, And it's a very recurring theme where he's having problems storing all of his money. Uh, He's pondering about this is the trouble with being rich. What do you do with all the money? Um, And he, he barely manages to close his vault when his clerk brings up this like, cartload of money bags explaining that it's a sack full of last month's receipts from things like his movie theaters um, and and his dress shops. And Scrooge is pondering how he didn't even know he owned these businesses. Um, and And this is like a very sort of this is a very accurate picture of the idea of a tycoon having his fingers in so many businesses that you don't even know all the things that you own. Um, and so eventually all of these new profits add up to this massive pile of at least 30 tons of money with no place to keep it. And Scrooge is left to ponder, what is he going to do with this windfall? You did mention that it's a recurring theme that he can't store all his money. And that was one of the questions that I had was how often are we starting a story out with him not being able to find storage? I, I, in just the few that I've read for the podcast, it's quite a theme. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing to point out. This comes up a lot. You know, we saw it in Christmas for Shacktown. Um, I can think of it in, well, I can't think of it under under pressure, but but I think it's safe to, to assume that there's probably a dozen or two stories with some variation on this. Um, it, it's, it's a great theme for Barks to go back to, right? Scrooge is this super rich guy. He's got this great concept of a man with like all this physical money. What are the problems with physical money? How to store it, 
how to keep it safe, and what to do with it. So we get a couple of those things here, right? And it answers a question that I've always had with these stories. Um, why doesn't he put it in a bank? But he's saying that the banks have refused him. The banks have refused him because he's already taken up too much of their space with his money already. Right, exactly. Barks does some pretty good setup here because, as you mentioned on the next page, you know he's Donald comes over and he's complaining to Donald about this awful problem, um, <laughs> and Do and Donald is making the suggestions, you know, build a bigger bin. But Scrooge complains that that would cost billions. What's the point of spending billions to store millions? Um, I don't think the logic works there, but at least at least Barks is addressing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then he suggests putting in the bank. And as you say, Scrooge is like, every banks refuse me at this point. And and that that kind of rings true. Um, and so we land at the only real solution as Donald sees it which is to spend this odious cash. Um, and I, I really like Scrooge's and Donald's expressions here as they're pondering this problem and Scrooge is aghast at the idea of spending it. What I, I like even better is that he's unwilling to pay Donald for his help. Right. He negotiates down from Donald's request of 50 cents an hour to... 30 cents. Right, right. Like the very obvious solution to this problem that he, you know, doesn't even entertain and Donald probably knows not to is that Donald could take some of it off of his hands. But but I kind of like how it's just so under uh it, it underpins Scrooge's character so much that um we he doesn't even ask to be given the money. He just proposes that Scrooge hire him to spend it. <laughs> right, because, you know, that work ethic that he's always trying to <laughs> drill into Donald, here's a good way to to um, earn the money. Right. And and I like Donald's um, excitement at the idea. And, and honestly, this is a great bit of wish fulfillment, right? Because, like, who wouldn't... Th this is a great exercise. Who wouldn't love the task of getting to spend a massive pile of money. it It's almost to me, like it's almost a blessing to be told that you can't keep it and that you have to spend it, right? Because you don't have to stress about being responsible, quote, with it. I, I like that term wish fulfillment so much because, you know, as a, a formerly very poor person, I have fantasized so much about what I would do with any amount of money, let alone Scrooge's money. Right. And, and I, you know, I still, I still think about that, right? Like I could help so many people. And it also brings up the episode of the good place when Tahani and Jason just walk around Sydney and just give away money just for the sake of giving it away. Um, that was a fun one. It, and it, uh, it was just, it just illustrated it in that, in that episode, it was illustrating what beautiful selfless, finally people they had grown into. Um, whereas in, in this episode, in this comic, uh, 
it's just in line more with <laughs> Scrooge being Scrooge. Right. And Donald being Donald. And Donald being Donald. Yeah. And it's very much played for laughs. And I and I think very successfully. But but yeah, I think I think that's a this is gonna be a big part of why this story works, right? Because this is a fun thought exercise in if you had to spend a bunch of someone else's money, how would you do it? And and Donald goes about it in this pretty ridiculous way. Um, and and that's going to be most of the rest of this story, right? It's it's very light. It's very fluffy. We get to watch Donald Scrooge and the nephews go on this really extravagant road trip around the country, um, spending money. And, and we don't need to think about the fact that Scrooge is joining in, right? Like we need him there for the comedy of it, even if he shouldn't. Logically, he shouldn't be along. Um, but, but it's, it's just a very fun, funny exercise. And so Donald sets out with a literal wheelbarrow full of cash. <laughs> I, I just love Scrooge's agonized look as Donald, um, pushes the wheelbarrow through the town with, with all these gawkers, uh, staring at it as you would expect, you know, and, and we're going to get this pattern where Scrooge points out a very frugal little chariot, a very reasonably priced little car. And Donald ignores him and says, I'm spending this money. And he points to this comically overpriced luxury vehicle, a Roadhog V24. <laughs> and, <laughs> do you want to tell when, what does the snooty salesman say is the cost? $50,000 as is. But if you want to upgrade to ermine seat covers, it's $100,000. Right. And so Donald dumps the barrow and tells him to, to count it from this heap. Um, and they proceed to buy a fancy trailer to haul the rest of the money in for their, their big extravagant road trip. And they pick up the nephews. Um, and again, we see this exchange for their, their first meal where Scrooge points out a very frugal little beanery with um, burgers that cost only 20 cents. And Donald pulls up to a very fancy restaurant uh, saying, it'd take you forever to spend that trailer load of money, Uncle Scrooge. We'll eat here. Um, and Sarah, beforehand, you and I were pointing out that the restaurant bears a name that would be um, considered offensive nowadays with the the word jip which was just a, like in common use at this time um it's called ye old jip in again that's not something that's that's something that we've just collectively most people have moved on from using that term right <laughs> and and i really like all the interactions where donald is extravagantly ordering things like from the restaurant do you want to tell us what the order is what he orders Five double orders of broiled bosoms of Caledonian chickadees, including everything from soup to nuts. Uh, and the waiter asks if he wants whipped cream on the nuts, and he says, yes, topped off with a cherry. And, and when told that the cherries will be $5 extra, he tells him to, to put on a <laughs> handful. And, 
And and this is how the story's gonna go. You know, they invite a bunch of the junior woodchucks in for this fancy meal when they see him. Um, <laughs> uh, Scrooge is just, his heart is breaking, right? After they leave, he says, I admit you're spending that money, nephew, but do you have to be quite so extravagant? Um, and he just, you know, he has to accept this, basically. <laughs> and And I love... I love what Donald says about the car. Do you want to tell us about the car on the next page? There's a bug spot on the windshield. So they're going to buy another car uh, just like that one, but with rabbit dyed to look like ermine, which is much, much better. Right, because it's another $100,000 extra. Um, and, and they pass this caricature of a very poor person who's kind of in a, like a, a, he's supposed to look like a hillbilly, I think. Um, and Donald notices he doesn't have any shoes and he tosses him some money for a dozen pairs. And the man just placidly keeps listing all these extended family members. And and it's it's a funny little bit, but it's basically at the guys at, at the expense of people who are stereotyped to be like hillbillies with with very large families, right? So the punchline is is that this sure would be some country to sell birthday cards. See, that one didn't make sense to me, but now now that you explain it, okay, yeah, I get it now. Right now, that's and that's a cute joke. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a silly joke at at poor folks with large families. Um, and and then there's another kind of joke on their road trip where they pass like a, a tourist, a tourist stop where there are Native Americans selling, quote, Indian silver trinkets. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very stereotyped representation of a couple of Native Americans who have priced their trinkets at 10 cents each. But when they see these rich tourists coming, they raise the price. Uh, they jack the prices up to $10 per trinket. You know, Donald doesn't care. This is all the better for Donald, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can't give them their land back, then <laughs> might as well just give them a shit ton of money. Right. And, and you know, Barks does this frequently. He definitely has these, like, caricatured versions of Native Americans. But he also, I've noticed that he really likes to show them getting one over on, quote, white people. Right. Because, you know, we know that the ducks are coded as being like right. white Americans, basically. They're the default, which is white. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I love it when they transition to the Blue Mountains and Donald decides, oh, got to get a new car to match the landscape. <laughs> I think I think the story is very successful in it. it he keeps hammering this this comic beat home, right? These ridiculous, over-the-top, extravagant ways to spend money. And the Ducks finally finish their road trip six days and seven automobiles later. Um, and they're all just exhausted. And I like Donald asking them about kind of their last meal before they wrap it up. Do you want to tell me what he asks them? Can you eat any more broiled bosoms of Caledonian chickadees? <laughs> and they're all just outraged. No. And no! So they, <laughs> they finally do visit a very down home beanery where they can get 30 cent a piece burgers. Donald kind of bemoans, can't you wrap them in gold leaf to make them expensive? And, and they do it. 
you know, they finally manage to spend all the money and they head home, a job well done. And Scrooge has Donald come up to his office to pay him his wages. And he's just thinking to himself, I, I was never through worse torture in my life. Thank goodness it's over. And do you want to tell us, Sarah, how the story wraps up? Well, it turns out there are several more bags of money waiting for him. Yeah, because and Scrooge protests, but I just finished spending a big pi- a pile like that. And then the clerk says, but some spendthrift billionaire has been touring the country, staying in your expensive hotels, eating chickadees in your expensive restaurants, buying roadhog cars, which are made in your factory, buying your ermine seat covers from your ermine farms. Your shoe factories have been working overtime. And here comes another sack full of money from your silver mines down in the Indian country. And we get one of those great barks like reaction drawings where it kind of dawns on Scrooge. What has happened? You know, he spent all this money only for it to circulate through the economy um, right back up to him because the buck stops with him, basically. And we get this funny comic um capper gag at the end where he asks the clerk if his cane came from one of his cane factories and when told that no you don't own any cane factories he he chases donald off intending to clobber him with it saying good i just got a hunch i'll be needing a new one in about 10 seconds so that story is very well constructed just like the financial fable right it mm-hmm. it has this it's a very circular story we we end up exactly where we start out he he has this very consistent theme that he is maintaining throughout the story it's it's less moralistic in this one than it is in a financial fable but he keeps up with that comic through line in this very consistent and to me very funny way uh just like a financial fable, it, it only falls apart for me when you actually think about like the economics of what he's implying. And like, I'm sure that there are people listening, Sarah, who are ticked off that like I'm getting I'm getting political with this. But like, <laughs> I would argue this is a very political story, right? This this story is taking the position that spending by the rich drives the economy and and that's like that's what ronald reagan basically staked his presidency on right and and that is is a huge part of um what i would argue is what's wrong with with the american economy right and a huge a huge portion of what's going on right now is the wage stagnation basically since the reagan administration and in order for in order for Scrooge to have gotten so much of his money back, he would have needed to not be paying his workers very much. And that's, of course, not addressed at all. I, you know, for for comedy's sake, you know, right. we oversimplifies these things. But it, I can only make noises. That's how frustrated <laughs> I am about. It. <laughs> it's it's just frustrating how this story is. One of the kind of pro-billionaire, pro-wealth accumulation stories, 
that we get starring Uncle Scrooge. Yeah, because like both of these stories, you know, the the previous one that we did, Financial Fable, and this one, they both like are taking the tack that at the end, it is reverting to the status quo, to the default. The rich are supposed to be rich. His money just naturally flows back to him. And, and for this one, I do have a real problem with the idea that like everything that he spent comes back to him, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that buried in there is the assumption that his money compounded in a way that economically it really wouldn't, right? And and I accept that this is done to simplify the story and, and to make it funny, right? I, and, and I actually think it works like very well. Um, it is structured. Barks gets to make his own logic for these stories, right? Like <laughs> I, I accept that. And I, I think this is a very successful story. I think it's very funny. Like Financial Fable, I love this story. I think it's great. It just, it does have that part of it that that rings a little bit false for me um, that I that I just find philosophically. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would say, well, you know, that this is just how, this is how the world works and, and economics works. But, but I would say, no, that's wrong. You know, the, these stories do have it wrong. He is presenting these concepts as though they're like laws of economics. And that's not actually how it works. And and this is just part of like, this is part of why, why I'm doing this podcast, you know, because, because <laughs> I, I, I love these stories and I want to celebrate them. I want to recognize their genius and their artistry, um, but they were so foundational for me. I also want to be really thoughtful about some of the like messed up ideas around the culture, um, including the some of the old racist ideas and the um, uh, economically unsound ideas that he presents. So right. That's that's a lot to just kind of project <laughs> out. Well, I, I know that your listeners um, tend to skew Scandinavian. And so I think you'll find a lot of agreement there. Yeah, that's that's true. Right. Because it, it's weird. Right. Barks fans are either people who are reading these in in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So a lot of them are, are older and a little bit more politically and economically conservative. I've definitely heard from some people who disagree with me on, you know, kind of focusing on some of these problematic elements. But I, I really appreciate that they're willing to listen and engage with the podcast, even if we don't mm-hmm. like, even if we disagree on the utility of thinking about these things. So I definitely have that kind of listener. Then there are definitely more younger listeners who have discovered these stories, uh, like during the time frame I had. And and you're right. A lot of the listeners from Europe, especially Scandinavia, probably grew up in economies that are like mixed. That you know, they're they're still capitalist. Co- uh, Economies, but they definitely have this like democratic socialism um, that that is more focused on kind of societal well-being, and and it that's another thing that really fascinates me is that there are all these like huge fans of Karl Barks from Norway and Sweden and Denmark.
Denmark and, and Finland and, and so on, Netherlands and, and Germany, um, Western <laughs> and Northern Europe, especially love Barks. And yet so many of the ideas of Barks are really antithetical to like those societies. And that just fascinates me. Well, it fascinates me that for, for the same reason, right? Of your love of these, your devotion of, to these, right? Because I know how you believe politically and you show none of the signs of taking in a lot of these political messages or these economic messages. Um, and and the fact that you've started this to kind of re-examine those ideas while being while consuming them at such a formative age, right? Like you're kind of emblematic of those listeners who are Barks fans, but still, you know, politically, fiscally left. Yeah. And I think there are many of us. And I, I like to think that there are people who are willing to enjoy it on on multiple levels and and kind of be able to separate out aspects of it. Um, and and I mean, all I can say is that I just I find his his art and his writing and the universe that he's created so appealing and so clever and intriguing that it really does override those like reservations that I have about some of these aspects. And honestly, I, I think that low key people do not appreciate what an incredible mirror for like American history between the, the late forties through the mid sixties. If you like think about Barks kind of his, his overall work, right? He had hundreds of these stories. Um, they talked about pop culture. They talked about adventuring around the world. Uh, they talked about just all these American ideas. I think it's one of the best representations. If you wanted to give like an alien an idea of what American culture was like between 1944 and 60, whenever he kind of went into his pseudo retirement, you could do a lot worse than like having him sit down and read all the bark stories while also mm -hmm. explaining that, yes, most people are not three and a half foot tall talking dogs. <laughs> but um, yeah, those are, those are kind of the reasons why I'm just endlessly fascinated by these stories. And, and I, I love them so much. I, I really mm -hmm. do. Then, and it should be said that they're not all, you know, he, he was a complex man, right? I think mm -hmm. I told you, he's not like purely a, a retrograde reactionary. He had some fascinating politics. Like the man was an isolationist, um, mm -hmm. even, even into World War II. You know, he was a, a big non-interventionist. So I, I think there was a little bit of a pacifist element to that too. He certainly believed in supply-side economics, but he also, like you can see in the later part of his career, he was a big-time environmentalist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like... Those two things don't really go together. Well, they they don't now, but they very well could have back then. The the political platforms of the respective parties were so much different. And as as America got pulled more and more to the right, despite the evidence of how supply side economics affects wages and the country. You know, he I feel like he was more in that like starry eyed, hey, this is a good idea. We're we're in this boom time. 
And, you know, maybe this will be a good thing. Um, whereas, you know, l- later on, it just turned out to be only benefiting the wealthy. And then we started getting propaganda to defend the wealthy and more and more people who were not prospering in the way that they were in the post-war, but were still able to be convinced to vote against their interests, right? Whereas they they were so early in the supply side experiment that they didn't even know that it was in their interests, I think, at that time. And so they could be a lot more progressive on some issues because they didn't see how it would threaten the ideology of the of their economic desires i guess yeah i mean i think that's right like things have gotten so polarized that people like naturally assume this belief has to go with this belief and so forth right. and, and 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 that's a good way of of really dividing and conquering people and and i don't know maybe um maybe the creation of scrooge is a, is a good like money laundering for um <laughs> for tycoons and the acceptance of tycoons except that he's not always um he's not always the hero but right. i don't know so let, let's see i i want to mm-hmm. talk a, a little bit about how um both of these stories do this really neat thing that barks does memorably a few times right um, and this is likely going to be a two-parter. So I'm I'm talking about our previous episode about Scroogeonomics, uh, where we talked about a financial fable as well as spending money. Um, what they both do, they have there's a lot of similar threads. But what I really like is that they're both these like closed experiments, right? He creates his own little economic experiments and watches them play out in a way that's very like illuminating to me and. Um, it kind of reveals how he thinks the world works. And it's also a really inventive and interesting story. Um, and he kind of does this as well in that famous Trouble with Dime story, you know, where he like has Scrooge manufacture scarcity. And that, that one is mm-hmm. just an incredible, I don't think there's any of these like problematic elements with that one either. It's just an incredible exploration of scarcity and kind of his early disgust with collectors. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned at the time I recorded that episode that it would it would be fascinated to see what he thought of the prices that his paintings and original comics fetch now. <laughs> oh, that's exactly where my brain went. Yeah. Um, Because he was, it it already blew his mind when he was able to sell some paintings into the hundreds. But now, you know, of course, those like, they they can go into the scores of thousands. And and we have a few more examples. You know, I recently got to do an example of, I I got to do an episode for Tra La La, the famous bottle cap story. They adapted Mm -hmm. that one into a DuckTales episode. I'm not sure if Hmm. you ever got to see that one. but No, I don't think so. But yeah, it's just, you know, there's that lost valley of people who um, I think it's interesting that his thesis there is that it's the metal and the money that corrupts the people, that they're mm-hmm. they're actually pure without it. So it's it's just another example of one of these kind of closed experiments he does. And then the last one, we're not going to go into big detail on this, but, but he did do this really cool five pager. Did you notice how brisk this story called um, There's Something Fishy Here was, Sarah? 
it was so small that you could just email me pages just straight in the email. <laughs> right. And this one is cool because like it is one of the examples of a five page story that really left a mark with people. If you look it up on Index, it is very well regarded. It was published alongside the very famous um, one shot story back to the Klondike in four color 456 January of 19. 54. And um, it's got a rank of 7.5. Good for number 255 out of all the stories. Um, it's by far the highest ranked story of that very short length. So I, I think it's a notable little accomplishment that he was able to construct something so memorable. And, and again, it's this very funny experiment where Donald wants to play this prank on Scrooge. Do you want to tell us what the prank is, Sarah? Donald convinces Scrooge that Congress has decided that currency will switch from dollars to fishes. It's so over the top. And and again, cartoon logic, this one falls apart. But, you know, (laughs) I'm willing to go along for the ride with this one just because of how outrageous it is. And, and the whole conceit of this story is that Scrooge is so, he is such a good tycoon. He's such a good industrialist that um, starting from nothing within just a couple of days, he is able to like barter up from a couple of fish into his whole mountain of, of fishy money again. Mm-hmm. Um and and again, it's like that myth of the Protestant work ethic, right? Scrooge is able to do this in the course of, of a day, I believe. And it has this very funny ending where, you know, he he's realizing that you were talking about the joy, right, that he gets from diving in his money. It's pretty easy to sympathize, Sarah, with why he wouldn't want to dive through his new fishy fortune. Right. And I found it so interesting, again, with the stereotype that I had had carried over from watching DuckTales and now reading a few of these Scrooge comics, where Scrooge was greedy for the sake of having money. When he's decided, like, you know, this fish currency is not my bag. I don't want to be rich anymore. I'm going to give it all to Donald, you know, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, because nobody wants to hoard fish, let alone <laughs> right. like it's not as fun to swim around in like a porpoise. Right. Yeah. And again, it's all very broad, over the top and ridiculous, but it makes for a great ending as Donald comes back to find that his house is like engulfed in this pile of fish that Scrooge has like sold to a trucker um, partially in exchange for dropping them off to Donald and the nephews are able to to say uh, and and with the fish came a note from Uncle Scrooge it says well never mind what it says your gag backfired (laughs) it's again just a very well constructed gag story Um, That's very breezy, very funny. And again, underlying it is this like interesting assumption that he makes about about Scrooge being such an exceptional man that he can do the rag to riches things thing 
again at the age of, you know, 75 or 80 or, or whatever he is in the span of a day. Right. Because it's, you know, like it's not necessarily the hard work. It's the 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 good decisions you can make. Right. I remember there's an episode of 30 Rock where uh, the CEO of NBC got fired because somebody else took over the network, not the CEO, but the Jack Donaghy, whatever. I don't know what he, what his position was. So he just, but he decided he didn't want to leave NBC. So he started back in the mailroom and he's like, last time it took me this many years to get up to my position as an executive. But this time I think I'll, I can, <laughs> I can whittle it down to like nine, you know, learning using what he learned right along the way the first time and it's it's this myth that america loves to tell itself over and over Mm -hmm. right and 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 self-made men and women definitely exist but but much more common are the people who like bandy themselves as self-made and then if you look into their backstory you realize oh while i was working in in the garage on my startup i got a seed loan from my ceo father of five hundred thousand dollars that that i got to pay back under sweetheart terms and um but but people love this stuff I love this stuff, right? Like this is <laughs> this is I loved reading these stories and I still do. It's such a it's such a weird dynamic. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a skill to be able to know what's right and, and what is more beneficial, but still, you know, see the see the fun in this right. kind of thing without internalizing the message. Yeah. One thing I wanted to go back to was my thoughts about when Scrooge was giving Donald the fish. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that he didn't trade the fish for anything that he wanted. And he didn't just give the fish to, you know, whoever. He gave it to Donald, you know, as his heir. And it it was kind of a sweet moment in the midst of all of the other times when he's been greedy and he doesn't want Donald to have any of his money, right? That he's like, okay, well, here's this thing that I've decided is now worthless. I'm going to give it to Donald and not expect anything in return. I'm not going to give it to somebody else. I'm not going to trade it for something better. I'm just going to give it to Donald out of the warmth of my heart because right. he wasn't in on the gag. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit touching, but of course it also benefits Bark's setup because oh yeah because it's got to backfire on Donald. He, de- he loves it. He likes to have pranks backfire. And that's very satisfying yeah. to read. Yeah. So I I really have been looking forward to recording this um, series for a while. This These are a couple <laughs> of big stories to consider, even if they're little 10 pagers. And I really appreciate you joining me for them. I think, I think that they're among the most fascinating and revealing of the stories that Barks ever did about kind of like his worldview and what what he thought about wealth and and money and finance. It's also an excellent snapshot of the kind of prevailing thought of, you know, the middle class of the time about wealth. Yeah, for sure. Um so so thanks again Sarah. I um I will hold my hopes out that at some day as you walk throughout the countryside and hold out your hat that you know, maybe a couple million bucks 
will will fall into it and you can and go I see hope, the world. And I hope that someday you have a rich great uncle or uncle who needs you to help spend his his millions. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'll take it. Awesome. Well, um listeners, thank you very much for joining us for these episodes for our concluding part of our Scroogeonomics episode. I had a great time talking about these stories. Feel free to reach out on our socials at Barks Remarks, um, Facebook, Instagram, if you want to yell at us about uh, why we're wrong. Um, or, you know, maybe even agree with us and, and our pithy commentary. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks again, Sarah. Thank you for having me, Mark. Awesome.